2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. We're continuing our Life in the Spirit series. This is a, a, a subject that we've been working through. Life in the Spirit um, is a phrase that actually occurs multiple times throughout the New Testament. It's one of the, the meta themes in Scripture. Um, God is not just uh, an abstract religious spiritual concept. Following Jesus doesn't simply mean that we subscribe to certain uh, doctrines or, or philosophical belief system, however you want to perhaps word that. It could be all of those things, but primarily it is that God is with us and that God came down and dwelt among us. His own creation died for us, came back to life, and then invited us to follow him and participate in his life which is referred to as life in the spirit. Jesus himself promised that he wouldn't leave us, but in fact that he would go and send another who would be with us and even dwell in us, and that is the Holy Spirit. So we've been exploring this subject. What, what does that actually mean? What does it look like in my day-to-day -day life to live life in the spirit with this increasing awareness that God is with me, with us, helping me, empowering me, leading me, talking to me, and actually inviting me to experience life in relationship with him, not just in concept, but in a very real sort of lived out way. So that's what we're doing, just to catch you up quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, is where we're going to focus this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened Beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's stop there. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you don't just give us words to ponder, but you, you join us when we gather like this. Jesus, that was your promise. That you would be with us when we gather in your name. Lord, won't you help us this morning? Be our teacher as we consider what these words mean for us. Help us to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to talk about suffering, comfort, sharing, and prayer. These are essentially the four categories that came up in this passage that we just read. This is, of course, a letter written by uh, the Apostle Paul and some of his um, co-laborers, Timothy, Silas. They write this letter to the ancient church that he started in the city of Corinth. Um, church has an interesting sort of history, a bit of a patchy, patchy track record. Um, they struggled a lot to, to get it right, as we all do. Um, they were really into the power of God. In fact, it would seem if you read the previous letter, the prequel to this letter, there was other letters, it would seem, as well. But if, if, you, if you read the rest of the letter, it would seem that there was a whole group of people in the church in Corinth who were really interested in power. They wanted to experience more of uh, God's power. Oops. No, never mind. It's my water. And then there was another group that were much more interested in knowledge. And it would seem like there was almost these factions, division in the church, go figure. And Paul writes these letters trying to help them, saying, look, power is good, knowledge is good. These are great things, but there's a more excellent way, and that is the way of love. And so Paul's helping the Corinthians to, to kind of wrestle through some complex aspects of their lives and relationships. And now he's talking to them about suffering. Suffering which is where we'll start, is intrinsic to the life of a Jesus follower. Um, some of you might have actually noticed that uh, this is something that I, I personally like to talk about a lot. Um, not because I'm into suffering. In fact, I think it should be said that uh, there are ways of thinking about suffering um, I don't want to get into pointing fingers or anything like that. But th there's different parts of the Christian uh, faith, various churches and whatnot, who view suffering almost as this like, like, like mark of piety. Like if you're suffering for God, then somehow that must prove that you're especially spiritual or, ho or holy. Like it's a badge of spiritual honor. And that's, that's it's not biblical, false, it's unhelpful. It's actually, oh, thank you so much, much my love. Surely. <laughs> I have to tell you this. I have to tell you this. One time we went on this little pastor's uh, kind of retreat thing. And at the beginning of the retreat, the, if there was one pastor. He stood up and he had brought his, his, his like co-pastors. He introduced the person as, oh, this is, and I brought my uh, personal assistant with me. And then that next pastor got up, same thing. Oh, my name's so-and-so, and let me introduce you to my personal assistant that I brought with me. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. And so it was my turn to introduce myself. I had brought my incredible wife, Shirley, with me. Only I introduced her, and I said, and this is Shirley, uh, my personal assistant and lover. It was very funny. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for assisting me personally. 
and being a fantastic lover. Where was I? Suffering. Suffering, suffering. So Jesus, he, he calls us to follow him. He says, if you love me, you have to lose your life so that you can receive new life from me. I mean, it's just a fundamental uh, part of being a Christian. You d die to yourself, you deny yourself, and you follow Jesus. Along the way, he'll ask you to surrender in, in ways that might actually be very painful, be very hard. Um, he'll begin to mess with the very core of our identity. It's very, very difficult, very, very hard. Um, but it's the way to life, it's the way to life. Um, I think sometimes, um, I don't know, I've, I've been a Christian now for over 20 years. I gave my life to Jesus in, um, what was it, 1999, November of 1999. And so for 20 plus years now, I've been attempting to follow Jesus, to trust and obey Jesus. And um, it's incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. Um, but the wonderful thing is that God gives us a spirit who helps us. So I don't have to sort of like, like muster the energy. It's not like this willpower thing. I just have to like keep turning to Jesus for help. Every time I'm like, dude, I'm sinking, I'm flailing, I'm struggling, temptations overcoming me, Jesus, help. He helps us. Um, but it is hard nonetheless. Sometimes as Christians, I think that we can buy into this idea that, well, if I give my life to Jesus, then that's the key to like the easy life. And, and it's just going to be all, all, you know, it's going to be a bed of roses. And we're just going to just kick back, drink in the grace, and wait for heaven. And that's just not it. It's, it's not if you read the New Testament. That's just not it at all. Um, he calls us to lose our life and to follow him. And uh, I think sometimes as Christians, speaking in very, very broad terms, I think, I think we have a rather uh, weak theology of suffering. And because of that, when we do suffer, it, like, we, it shakes us. We don't know what to do with it. And instead of rejoicing in trials, instead of being confident that God is with us and that our Father is the master of redemption, that he even uses what the enemy, I'm talking about the devil, would otherwise want to use for evil, God can use it. He can redeem it and use it for something really good. Um, this is what we've just read. Verse uh, 9, we read, Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Jesus wants to teach us. No, Jesus is utterly determined to teach us, his disciples, how to rely not on ourselves, but on him. One of his parables, he talked about building your house on the rock. That in life, you're going to have all sorts of troubles, all sorts of challenges, all sorts of difficult things, within and without. He says to make it through this life and to have hope and to get to the end and experience eternal life, my life, you've got to build your house on the rock. Because if you build it on anything else, i.e. sand, it's going to end up falling apart when the storm comes. And so God knows this about life, 
about our lives and he's determined to teach us to rely on him, not on ourselves. Which is in, in itself incredibly difficult because I would argue that, um, that one of the pillars, if not the bedrock of modern Western society itself is self-reliance, independence, do it yourself. And if you can pull that off, then you've, you've achieved the pinnacle of, of life as we know it. And Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Let me teach you how to build your house on the rock. Now, of course, we still have to learn how to be a hardworking, independent um, people and all of that. I have kids. I know this. I want my kids to grow up and, and become all of those things. But more than anything else, I want my children and I want us as a church to learn how to rely on Jesus. I was um, thinking back to an interview that I listened to over the summer. You know, when we were sort of like in the, the thick of it. And um, I was listening to uh, Theology in a Raw. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And uh, Preston Sprinkle is the name of the guy who does the podcast. He was interviewing uh, this incredible uh, Christian woman, a powerful leader, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you might be familiar. She's written some books. But she has a fantastic story. Uh, for virtually all of her adult life, she was an uh, English and women's studies professor at Syracuse University. And uh, her, her field of academic specialties was critical theory, specializing specifically in queer theory, and during her tenure at Syracuse University, she was a, a, a radical advocate for LGBTQ rights, and she wrote policy uh, for gay couples on uh, her campus, and, and that was her, her great passion, her education, and her life. Um, in the late 90s, she was working on a paper writing about the, uh, the right religion, or like the far-right religion and their politics of hatred towards people like her. And she was working on this paper and she, was, she ended up connecting with a reformed Presbyterian minister who she started to use as like her research resource to talk about, to learn about the Bible. During about a two year period of time, she was reading large chunks of scripture. And by the end of her research paper, she had converted to Christianity. Yeah, wild, huh? And as she tells her own story, she said that it cost her everything, except her dog. <laughs> but she gained eternal life. And so most of her writing has to do with that journey of her being um, a, a lesbian woman, a radical activist, and very, very educated, full of compassion, obviously, um, but then learning how to basically die to herself and surrender her whole self to Jesus. You talk about hard. And I, I have the utmost respect for anyone who's currently on that journey. The utmost respect. But uh, during this interview on theology in the raw, Preston Sprinkle asked her the question, because she ended up marrying um, a Presbyterian minister uh, not the one that she had met during her journey, but another man, and, and they've been married for a while, and they have kids, and Preston Sprinkle asked her the question, if your daughter, your teenage daughter, were to come to you and say, Mom, 
um, I, I'm attracted to women. And so I think that's, yeah, coming out to you now. What would you, what would you say? What would you do? What would you want to, to, to share with her? And she said, I would want to somehow impart to her a, a deep theology of suffering. Because to follow Jesus the way I've done has cost me everything. It's, it's not been easy. Not a single day. But it's been worth it. Because I've gained new life in Jesus. I've gained eternal life. I would want her to know how to suffer well. To suffer in hope. As she follows Jesus. Now I know for some of you, I just, I just opened <laughs> Pandora's box. Very, very aware of that. I thought about that before I, I decided to share this anecdote. Um, I hope it doesn't throw you off for the rest of the morning because I have some other things that I'd like to say. Um, perhaps if it is something that's kind of triggered you, uh, go look up Rosaria Butterfield. Read her stuff. It's phenomenal. Very, very honest. Very honest. Helpful. Let's talk about comfort. Because if there's no comfort without, if there's suffering with no comfort, um, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I'm keen for that ride. Verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As a community, as a church family, I long for us to grow in our ex expectation of comfort. I'm not suggesting that we all just become martyrs and like zoom in on suffering. Like how, how miserable would that be? But as we suffer, because we will, because that's the nature of planet earth and humanity and life, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, like that's life, as we suffer for the sake of the gospel, as we experience pain as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want us to grow in our expectation of comfort because there is no pain or suffering in this world that surpasses the abundant comfort that Jesus offers us along the way and I've thought a lot about this particularly in the light of this past year because I thought to myself man there's been moments along the way where I felt like man I, I, this kind of feels like suffering like a weird sort of suffering because I'm 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 healthy uh, uh I've got a house, I've got a roof over my head, I've got food in my fridge, I've got all the modern things of, of, that comfort is made of, but life is really, really hard in 2020. Has anyone felt that at all? Anyone? Nathan? Okay, cool. And then I thought, okay, if that's true, the Bible promises me that an abundance of suffering comes, an overabundance of comfort. Have I experienced this comfort this past year? And I'll be dead honest with you. The answer is no, not really. In drips and drabs. But one of the takeaways for me personally this past year is that, oh goodness, um, I think God wants to teach me how to experience more of his comfort and suffering. Like I totally want to figure that out. I want to ask God to, to help me to find comfort in his love for me, in his strength, in his faithfulness when I'm suffering. 
Because the way the Apostle Paul is writing about this stuff, it's so like there's this, this humble confidence of, about it. Like, yeah, we suffered. You, you have no idea. We, it was like we had been given the sentence of death. It was insane. Crazy. We thought that was it. But our hope was unshakable. Like, we were, it was, we were unwavering because we know that the God of all comfort was with us. Supplying for our every need, helping us. He is the great comforter. We... Uh, we sang the song this morning, one of my favorite hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. I'm sure many of you have heard the story of Horatio Spafford, but I'll share it anyways. So uh, in the 19th century, it was actually 1871, the great Chicago fire, Horatio Spafford. He was a successful attorney, apparently, and owned a bunch of property in the city. Lost it all in the great fire. Around that same time, apparently his four-year-old son, his only son, died of scarlet fever. He thought it would be a good idea to send his wife and four daughters on a trip to England for a vacation to get away to recoup. As they were traveling over the Atlantic, Horatio stood uh, behind, stayed behind to work on some business details. But as they were traveling across the Atlantic, their ship collided with another ship. 200 people died, including, including all four of his daughters. His wife survived. Upon arriving in England, his wife immediately sent a telegram back to her husband, Horatio, starting with the words, what did she say? Uh, Saved and alone, what should I do? Immediately, Horatio Spafford got on a boat himself and began to travel across the Atlantic the captain of that ship, aware of the tragedy that he had experienced, informed Horatio of the, the moment they were passing the area in which the ship had gone down and he had lost his four daughters. And he began to write words in his journal. And he described how his heart and his mind were just filled with the peace of God, the comfort of God. And he wrote the words, when peace when peace like a river attendeth my ways, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. I want to know that kind of comfort. I do and I don't. It terrifies me to think what, what a hard journey it would have been to learn that kind of comfort in Christ. But that's the comfort that, that we're to expect as we follow Jesus. I was chatting with a friend just yesterday. And um, he was describing to me how he was dealing with some uh, overwhelming fear because of some, some past events in his life. And he said, so I went for a run and I began to pray. I began to pray out loud. And he said, after about an hour of talking to Jesus, I kid you not, it was like all of the fear just began to dissipate. 
and the comfort of Jesus began to fill my soul. I want to know that kind of comfort. I want us as a community to be able to suffer in that way, knowing that the God of all comfort is with us and he is faithful. Let's talk about sharing. I want to be the kind of church community that cultivates a culture, fosters a culture of radical sharing. Sharing in our suffering, sharing in our comfort. That's what Paul was talking about. It was something about when we suffer, we experience comfort in Christ, and it's the comfort that we're comforted with that we get to share it with others. And so if, we're, if we suffer, it's for your comfort. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort. And likewise, when you share in our suffering, you get to experience the same kind of comfort. And so there's this sort of communal dynamic to suffering and comfort. And I think that when it comes to comfort, we sort of in, inherently know that we're meant to like comfort each other. Unless you're just cruel. Unless you're a sociopath, you're like, look, I'm good. I don't know what your problem is, but I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm comfortable, so good luck with your drama, whatever it is. Like, n- normally we don't do that, even if we're thinking it. We, we know how to at least act right. Although, I would say, I think sometimes we do struggle with that. I think sometimes we can uh, get prideful in our, in our comfortable lives, thinking that, well, I'm comfortable. Clearly, I made good decisions. So what's your problem? Hmm. That's not the way of Jesus. I'm pretty sure that the Son of God was well comfortable in heaven. He made all the right choices. And he chose to come down. To comfort us. To rescue us. To suffer for us. That we might be with him. So there is that. I think that we struggle even more, though, when it comes to sharing our suffering. I think we're scared to share our suffering. I think it's a terrifying thing to be vulnerable with another. Occasionally, um, you know, you might find yourself with a really, really close friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a family member, and you'll, you'll, you'll find yourself in relationship with that one person who is so safe, who's so faithful that you know you could say virtually anything to them, and they're not going to judge you, they're not going to reject you, they're not going to talk behind your back, they're not going to give you a dirty look, they're not going to look down on you, they'll actually stand with you, mourn with you, comfort you walk with you, help you, speak truth to you, fight for you, pray for you. But that's such a rare thing. What if we as a whole church community began to sort of foster a culture of sharing? Not where we all walk around and be like, hey, let me tell you about my drama this week. Let me tell you all about my... Boundaries are good too. Super good. But, but, what if we began to sort of push back against that that natural uh, cultural tendency that says keep up appearances. Especially when you come to church. Keep the mask on, literally and metaphorically. Because if someone were to find out who you really are, what you're really thinking, 
who knows what will happen. You know what I found this, going back to this summer again, I've re been reflecting a lot on this past summer. Uh, someone at our leadership meeting this Tuesday commented to me how it would be very helpful if we, as a church, were a little more intentional to reflect a little bit on this past year before we get too far on. Because there are some really, really good lessons, I think, to take away. Just to ask ourselves the question, Lord, what were you doing this past year? And what, what is it that you want me to really take away? Because it was hard. It was really, really hard. And I'm convinced that there's some, like, really good stuff that you want me to hold on to for, like, the rest of my life. And one of the things I realized, I spent a good portion of the summer worried that if I said the wrong thing, people were going to leave. Like, I'm just speaking as a pastor, someone who, who professionally uh, speaks and preaches and teaches the Bible in all sorts of various contexts. If I say the wrong thing, people who I actually care about, respect, and love are going to leave. And it kind of dawned on me at one point, like, oh my gosh, like, this is a real fear. I'm afraid that if someone finds out what's really going on in here, they're going to leave. That couldn't be any further from the heart of God. In fact, Jesus, when he's describing what it's going to be like when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, I am going to leave. I'm going to go to the Father, but don't worry because I'm going to send another, another helper, another counselor, another comforter, depending upon how you translate the Greek word paraclete. I am going to send you another, a comforter to be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. That's John 14. Deuteronomy 31, God says explicitly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrew 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The heart of God is that I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to listen to your confession and stare at you in disgust because you finally crossed the line, you sicko. I can't believe you thought that. I can't believe you did that. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Better yet, why don't you just see your way, your way out? Like, that's not the heart of God, but how oftentimes is that the sort of lingering fear that we carry around in our hearts? If someone really knew what was going on in here, they'd reject me. They'd leave me. They'd shun me. They, they'd reinforce the shame I carry around all the time, worrying about what people think about me. What if as a church family, we began to, to practice this sort of posture of whatever you say, whatever's really going on, you can say it. I won't leave you. I won't leave you. I'm not going to turn my back on you. No matter how terrifying it may be, no matter how scared you might feel, the thought of being found out, that sin, that dark secret you carry, that weight, that question, that doubt, that opinion. If you said it out loud, what would happen? I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave. We're family. Occasionally, Jesus will say, okay, you, I'm sending you over there, and he'll move his kids around. I'm not talking about, let's, like, make a cult where, like, no one's allowed to leave ever. Okay. Just, just to qualify what I'm saying here. 
I'm talking about the, the sort of depth of relationship, the compassion that reflects God's heart that says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I don't care what you're going through, what you've done. If you're willing to bring it to the light, I'm going to stand with you. I'm not going to reject you. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. Wow. I want to be a part of that church. That's sharing. Prayer. The passage actually ends with this little, I don't want to say throwaway verse, but this little like ending thought. Verse 11, Paul says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The whole passage is like God's going to help us. God's going to comfort us. He is the God of all comfort. He's going to do it. He raises the dead. Our hope is secure. Oh, and by the way, pray for us because through your prayers, you're going to help us as well. It is actually one of the great, most profound mysteries in all of the Bible. God does it. He's the mighty one. It's his strength. It's his faithfulness. It's his grace. He raises the dead. I am weak, but he's a, he is strong. And if I pray, lives are going to be affected. Isn't that the weirdest thing ever? Like somehow God is, is determined to include us, his people, his kids, and the work that he's doing in others' lives. Like, my prayers are actually powerful like that. Even though it's not me, it's him. But yet, I still need to pray for others. What if we became the kind of community that we grew in our radical expectation, a radical desperation to pray for each other? What if every time something went sideways, life got hard, you offended me, or the other way around, if instead of just going straight, like, let's solve the problem, let's figure out who's right and who's wrong, and, and, and how does this all work together, what if we just learned to become a people who said, you know what, God has the answer to this. God can change hearts. God can help us. Let's pray, because you promised that our prayers are powerful. Through our prayers, many will be delivered and give thanks to God. Now, here's the real the big question. This is like the litmus test, right? How much do you pray? If you believe that, like we'll be praying all the time. Paul said, don't ever stop praying. Just don't ever stop praying. Just pray all the time without ceasing. I don't even know what that means. Honestly, I'm like, how does anyone do that? Is, is it just hyperbole? Maybe, but I think the point is that we would be a people of prayer because we have a revelation that when we pray, God moves. He changes hearts. He rescues lives. He, he does stuff. He transforms the city. He changes the, the, the tide of culture. He restores brokenness. What if we were the kind of people who believed that to the extent that we prayed a lot? And then we announced, hey guys, we're going to do this thing. 18 days of morning prayer. Who's in? And my wife is like, woo! And I'm like, ooh. Oh, I'm so desperate, guys, to, I don't, I, I, I said this at our pre-service meeting for all of our volunteers serving this morning. I'm so sick of reading about it. I'm so sick of talking about it. I'm sick of listening to myself preach about it. 
I want to do it. I so want to do it. I just want to do it. I just want to be the kind of people that pray. Are you, you guys are with me. You guys are with me. Now, I understand it's one thing to listen to me get excited about it, and it's another thing when we actually start tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I am going to brew coffee. You know, coffee is biblical, right? I'm sorry, I can't help myself. Coffee is biblical, right? Get your theology straight. The Bible explicitly says he brews. <laughs> My grandma told me that joke. <laughs> My grandma. What if we became that kind of church? Wow. That'd be amazing. That'd be utterly amazing. You may be wondering, why 18 days exactly? Simple. One plus eight is nine. Nine flipped over is six. God created the world. No, I'm just kidding. That's, <laughs> that's so stupid. <laughs> it's totally arbitrary, all right? It just so happens that in 18 days, we'll get to the 29th, which happens to be a Thursday, which happens to be the night that a few of us have been getting together to pray, and that's going to be the thing that we do on Thursday night. We're going to pray and worship. So it just happens to be 18 days from tomorrow. So if in case you were wondering. Can I invite our worship team to join me on stage, please? I told myself I was going to finish by 11, so there you go. Future preachers, if you want to know how to, like, land a sermon, just tell yourself, be done at 11. That's it. <laughs> Suffering, comfort, sharing, and prayer. I desire for us to be a people with the deep theology of suffering. That our suffering would be Christian suffering. Not some sort of weird, twisted version. But a suffering that's full of hope. The kind of suffering that we can be, be confident that, that our Father is the master of redemption. He uses pain to teach us to depend on Him to help us in that way. I desire for us to be the kind of people who have a radical expectation of comfort, knowing that there is no pain in this life that trumps God's comfort. He comforts us. It is well with our soul. I want us to be the kind of people who we can begin to foster a culture of sharing. And when I'm hurting, I don't have to be afraid to let you see my pain. Because whatever I say, I know that you're not going to leave me. You're not going to reject me. You're not going to smile at me and then go talk about me behind my back and call it prayer. And let's pray. I'm challenging you guys. Tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Will it hurt? Heck yeah. Maybe that's the suffering. I don't know. Possibly. 6 a.m. Let's do it. As we worship now, we're going to close in a song of worship as we normally do. Um, we have a sister, a young lady getting baptized this morning. If you haven't figured it out. Yep. Um, Shalise, 
Am I saying your daughter's name right? Okay, that was kind of like good enough. Okay, okay. Shalice, 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 thank you. Shalice um, is getting baptized this morning. Uh, Casey Crane has actually been uh, in, in communication with her, and, and they've been talking it through, and it's just very, very exciting. Her family's here. She's going to get baptized. Um, but we're going to worship in, in a song this morning, and then we're going we're to do that. If you're her family, you're welcome to come right up front and center. You can take pictures or whatever you want to do, and we're going to have a little family moment. Can we stand together, please? Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this life that you've called us to, life in the spirit, life following you, trusting you, surrendering our lives to you, um, experiencing more of you. Lord, would you help us as we think through the implications of what we've heard today so that we wouldn't just uh, keep it to ourselves, but that we would be your people who, who go out and share it with the world. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's worship.